as we turn to the reading of God's Word, we are reminded that we are God's children, each and every one of us adopted to be sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. Today we celebrated that with Braxton in a special way, and we actually have, I think, what we would call a baptism trifecta coming up of Braxton rounds this week, Adriana DeVries next week, and Joseph Morin the week after as we celebrate that each and every one of these children, that Christ died for them. And it reminds us that Christ died for each one of us. And as God's children, we want to do our best to follow Jesus, to continue to follow him wherever he leads us. One of the ways that we follow Christ is by following through his word. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. As we continue to follow Jesus, he's turned towards Jerusalem. And just as we are in the season of Lent, which is our preparatory time leading up to when Jesus was crucified, and then on Easter Sunday when we celebrate his resurrection, in Mark chapter 10, 32 through 52, we continue that Lenten journey of drawing closer to Jerusalem, closer to the death of our Lord. But we also know the rest of the story, that even as we draw closer to Christ's death, we draw closer to his life, resurrection, and ascension, which is where we put our hope and all of the promises that we celebrated today with Braxton. So I invite you, as we turn our attention to God's word, to follow Jesus in Mark 10, 32 through 52. But before we do so, let's pray. God, our Father, may your word be our rule your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our primary concern. It is in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, He will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have already been prepared. When the ten heard about this, They became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped him and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks this question twice in these short 20 verses of Mark chapter 10. And consider the spectrum of attitudes and situations that he offers this earnest question to. What do you want me to do for you? Is asked to experienced followers who've been with Jesus for a while. And it is asked to someone who's meeting Jesus for the first time. Jesus asks that question to two brothers who should have known better than to ask what they're asking for, really. And Jesus asks a man who is asking based only on the faith of a reputation of someone that he's heard about. Jesus asks that question when he knows that he'll deny the request, but uses it to teach individuals who lack understanding. And he asks when he knows that he'll heal and commend someone's faith. Jesus asks the same question, even when he knows that the answer will be foolish and selfish. And Jesus asks the question when he knows the answer is an innocent request for a basic need. What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? If Jesus were to come and ask you face to face, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer it? And I'd want to ask you that, not just how you think you should answer it, not just with the right words, the right answer, but where from your heart does your answer truly come from? How would you answer Jesus at face value? What do you want me to do for you? We might be like Bartimaeus, 
and request healing or comfort for our own self or for a loved one. Remove the cancer. Take away the depression. Cure the addiction. Bring them back to life. We might have a request like that. Or we might be like James and John and request something a bit outlandish. Jesus, make me more important. Jesus, make me a more prominent person. Sometimes our answer to Jesus' question, as reflected by our own prayers, may seem a bit vain. Sometimes what we ask for might be something that we know is kind of out of line, but we can't help that that is where our heart seems to be. Consider, if you were to answer that question, Jesus, can't you make me smarter than I am? Jesus, can't you make me more intelligent or or better looking or wealthier? Those responses might just indicate that we're a little bit self-conscious about our intelligence, insecure about our looks, or even a request for wealth might not come from a place of outright greed, but could be revelatory of some anxiety that we have over money and finances, that we're not totally sure if God will take care of our every need, giving us this day our daily bread. We might judge other people for how they would answer it, We might try to dress up what our answer would be, but the question remains the same. Regardless of the answer we give, what do you want me to do for you? Use that question for your own heart and answer it to God honestly, even if you know that it's not the right answer. Because Jesus can handle our honest answers to that question, and Jesus can work on our hearts when we come completely before him, pretending we have a good answer when really it's not the answer that's on our heart. It isn't helpful, and it's not fooling anyone, because God knows our hearts. What do you want me to do for you? Share with God what's actually in your heart, because Jesus is immeasurably wise and can handle whatever answer we would give him to that question. And honestly, Jesus is extraordinarily patient. If Jesus were not patient, he wouldn't have kept putting up with the disciples and their silly questions and even their sillier answers. Jesus was extraordinarily patient then with his disciples, and I think he's extraordinarily patient with us today, his disciples of modern time. If you don't think Jesus needs to be patient with you, you might have a very high opinion of yourself indeed. But Jesus, in his patience and immeasurable wisdom, can handle whatever answer people give him to his question, what do you want me to do for you? I like James and John. I really do. But they come to him like little kids, kind of like the close your eyes and hold out your hands. Have you ever been asked to do that? They come to him like little kids, and they don't really know what they're asking. And what they ask is not going to happen. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Remember in Mark chapter 6, when King Herod made a foolish promise? 
I will give you anything that you ask for up to half of the kingdom. When that happened in Mark 6, we all knew that that was a stupid promise to make. And Herod made it. I'll give you anything you ask for. And so it caused great consequence for Herod. But now in Mark chapter 10, we have the wisdom of Jesus contrasted against the foolishness of Herod. Herod, who jumped out and said, I'll give you anything you ask for. And Jesus, who would ask, give us whatever, give us whatever we ask you for. Jesus responds wisely with, what do you want me to do for you? No promise is given one way or the other on if he'll actually grant the request that they bring to him. But he wants them to say it. And he's not going to agree to it until he knows what the terms are, even though he already knows that the terms are quite foolish. Jesus doesn't say, sure, whatever you want, sons of Zebedee. He makes no promise on if he'll make the request or not. But he does make them answer it. What do you want me to do for you? And they basically ask for good seats in heaven. Jesus gives them a challenge that they don't actually know what they're asking for. If they can actually drink the cup of suffering which he will drink from and be baptized with the baptism that he has been baptized with. And even though Jesus has just talked about his death, they don't seem to understand what they're really agreeing to. But eager as they are, they fully agree. Jesus does confirm that they will drink the cup and they will share in his baptism, even though they don't fully understand. But he explains to them what they're asking for really is out of the question. And Jesus knew that all along. But he doesn't say no right away. He lets the question be asked and answered honestly. I myself know that I'm glad that Jesus doesn't punish me for foolish or even selfish prayers. But in the midst of our sometimes foolish and selfish prayers, Jesus teaches us more about his will in the midst of them. Jesus reminds the disciples again that they have been called to service, not lordship. Jesus, who will wash the feet of his disciples, is telling them again right now that the greatest must become the least if they are to follow his example. And concluding all of this teaching, this reminding, this teaching point that James and John were definitely out of line for what they were asking and that they simply still just don't get it because they want more power, more status, more prominence, more authority. But Jesus reminds them, this is not the way of the cross that I've called you to. And in verse 45 gives that pinnacle of the Gospel of Mark. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came to give his life. To give his life as a ransom for many. Three weeks in a row we get to celebrate that visibly with Braxton, with Adriana, with Joseph. And really, every time we gather together in worship, it should be a reminder that Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom for many. And that we do drink the cup that he drank. And that we are baptized with the baptism that he was baptized with into his death so that we may share in his life.
we get to celebrate that. And so today, what do you want me to do for you? Is there anywhere in our hearts where we simply say, Jesus, claim these children as your own. Remind us that they are children of God and remind us that we are children of God. But then in the same text, the same text where Jesus' disciples pretty foolishly answer that question, what do you want me to do for you? After all of that and after Jesus trying to straighten them out again, then Bartimaeus happens. The blind man in Jericho who catches Jesus and his disciples as they're leaving the city. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, he cries. And he cries this out loudly and in earnest, and he's making a scene, and people are trying to shush him. But he does so with all abandon. Pause here for a second. What does Bartimaeus call Jesus? Son of David. Who is David? David was a king. Jesus, son of David, is a title reflecting kingship, reflecting royalty. A line of David is the line of kings. And now put this together with the first verse in the text that we read. At the very beginning in verse 32, we read that we're told when they're on their way to Jerusalem, as Jesus led the way, the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Why the astonishment and fear? It's not actually from the teaching just before, even though that would be a hard teaching to wrestle with. But both by mechanics and word choices in Greek, the disciples and those who follow are astonished and afraid because Jesus is leading the way to Jerusalem. Jesus is not on good terms with the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet, he's leading the way to Jerusalem, where the scribes and the Pharisees have the most centralized power that they have. Jesus leads the way. The disciples are astonished at his audacity, and some are afraid. They're headed to Jerusalem, Jerusalem where Herod could be. Herod, who had John the Baptist beheaded. Herod, who is paranoid and will kill anyone who threatens his power. And here, in Jericho, on the way to Jerusalem, Bartimaeus calls out Jesus by a kingly title. The audience is trying to shush Bartimaeus, for one, because he's probably making a scene, but for two, because you do not reflect that anyone else could be a king other than Herod, because you could be put to death for something like that. And yet Bartimaeus calls out all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is the only king that Bartimaeus recognizes because Herod and the kings of this world can do nothing for Bartimaeus. But Jesus, if Jesus really is the king of all, as far as Bartimaeus has heard through his reputation, if Jesus really is everything that we think he is, then Bartimaeus knows that Jesus can do everything for Bartimaeus. Herod can do nothing for our good friend Bart. Jesus can do everything for him. The disciples are astonished, 
The crowds are afraid and trying to keep this quiet. But with all this in mind, Bartimaeus keeps crying out and recognizing Jesus as a son of David, as a son of kings. And then Jesus calls him forward. Jesus calls him forward, and that same question returns. The same question that got a pretty foolish and selfish answer earlier, but Jesus asks it again. What do you want me to do for you? Rabbi, I want to see. The answer is simple, honest, and it's a basic need. No fancy frills attached to it. No impressive words of theological argument for why, whether he sees or not, he'll be okay. There is no pomp or circumstance around Bartimaeus' request. Simply this, Rabbi, I want to see. His answer is an honest prayer, a genuine lament that the world is not as it should be, that Bartimaeus can't see, and he should be able to. Rabbi, I want to see. Your faith has healed you, says Jesus. And Bartimaeus is given his sight. What does Bartimaeus do with his sight? He follows Jesus. Do you remember the blind man near Bethsaida that Jesus healed of blindness? We don't know who he is because he wasn't around long enough for Mark or any of the other gospel authors to catch his name. But Bartimaeus, we know his name because after Jesus heals him, He follows Jesus. He follows him even to Jerusalem, where death awaits. Bartimaeus uses his sight to follow Jesus. His sincere answer to that question, what do you want me to do for you, results in a completely life-changing direction. My friends, in this season of Lent, What do you want Jesus to do for you? Might we turn that question in on itself? Jesus has given his life as a ransom for many. He has offered his life, and in his death and resurrection, we are united with him. Jesus has already done so much for us. The question still is worth answering in our own prayers and as a way to reflect But what if we turned that question, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Have you considered what it would be like to ask Jesus that question? Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Now, we're in the season of Lent. Some of us are fasting. Some have taken on a different spiritual practice to guide us through these 40 days leading up to Easter. But consider just for a moment that if we ask that question to Jesus, there might be particular acts of service that we're called to or good things that we can do. But I would encourage you to resist the temptation to make a spiritual checklist of good things to do. Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Maybe the starting point that Jesus would give us an answer is to simply remember that we are beloved children of God.
Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? I want you to remember that you are my child whom I love. This is the primary way that our identity should be shaped. Not rich or poor, Democrat or Republican, or any other typology we could put ourselves in. But to be reminded by Jesus, you are my child. And I love you. If we accept what Jesus would call us to be his children, then the spiritual checklist, all of the good and right things to do, fall into place. Going past someone who is in need of assistance, maybe we do just have to ask ourselves, well, what would Jesus do? I should stop and do the right thing. But is it an external thing or does it come from our heart? If we shape ourselves and remember that our primary identity is that we are children of God, then we act as children of God would act, with mercy and compassion and service. Because that's what Jesus did. And if we are children of Jesus, then that is what we do too. Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? My friends, I hope that the first part of that answer that you hear, and every, the rest of it will be a little bit different, but the first part can be centered on the simple reminder that you are a child of God, called and dearly loved. Shape your identity after Jesus. And then the, the things to do, the spiritual checklist, will take care of itself. What do you want me to do for you? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Jesus, regardless of our motives or the wisdom or foolishness in our answer, you ask each one, what do you want me to do for you? May we respond in earnest to this question but may we also be willing to ask it in return and in so doing respond to your grace that we may know that we are children of you to be reminded, to be shaped and formed. That when we ask you, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? That it may start with remembering who you are, what you have done, and that you have called us as your children, beloved children of God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.